Okay, so King David writes in Psalms, Me oivai Not oive. <laughs> Although there is a little oive here as well. Me oivai, what's an oyev? An enemy. An enemy. <laughs> not Khomeini, not Khomeini, no, 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 no. <laughs> Listen, you know, it's Hanukkah, we're, it's old school. Tichakmeini means my enemies, my over Tichakmeini means my enemies have made me wise. King David, we know, was on the run for many years. And many people wanted to get him. Both the enemy the Philistine enemy, the Pelishtim enemy, as well as uh, he had his own <laughs> within the Jewish community enemies. He was on the run for many years. And King David writes, May oivai techakmeni... There you go, Julie. Happy Hanukkah. <laughs> Consider my Hanukkah go. May oivai techakmeni means that from my enemies, my enemies make me wise. Like chachma. Remember chachma? Chachma wisdom. Techakmeni is the... That's the... It's the Hebrew way of saying, have made me wise. My enemies have made me wise. So why is it that you think enemies might make a person wise? Why might, not that God forbid any of us have enemies, but theoretically, if someone had enemies, why would the enemy make them wise? I'm sorry. Okay. You learn from your experiences. Okay, good. You learn from experiences. What else? Your own reactions. It's has your own reactions Oh, oh, good, good, good. Your own, your own patience and reaction. Okay, good. That's very good. What else? Learn what not to do. What else? Oh, okay, good, good, good. You find out what your weak spots are. Now, how do you find out what your weak spots are? By learning what they do. Okay, good. And what did you say? Okay, there's, there's one other point. There's one other point that I think we're, we're, we're about to touch on. Cause you're, okay, good. On what? Your part. So here's here's what I'm here's what I'm thinking, and this is brought down in, in, in some sources. Now, again, all of the all of the themes that were mentioned are, are are absolutely accurate. But there's one other point, maybe a little bit of a subtle twist that wasn't yet mentioned, and that is that our enemies can teach us about ourselves. What's really important? Because the enemy will go after that which is most important. The enemy sees that this is something that we need to get, we need to destroy. They can identify within you what is very important. And they're going to go after that. And it can be terribly beneficial to understand. In other words, having an enemy that is attacking... Can be, can be very beneficial to teach you what indeed is truly important and what indeed is truly sacred. Because that's what they're going to go after. Now they're going to go after maybe the, vulner, the, the vulnerable areas, etc. But they're also going to go after the critical, the critical pieces. Okay. So where do we see this? We see this in the story of Hanukkah, but I'm going to get to that soon. Because it's not so easy to get to the punchline. That's not how, that's not how we roll. We see this... When it came to, when it comes to anti-Semitism, traditional straight-up anti-Semitism over the centuries, 
over the millennia. Historically, when anti-Semitism reared its ugly head, what is one of the first areas of the Jewish community that were attacked? Give me a specific area. Give me a specific... What was attacked? What was attacked and what was defaced? Synagogues. What else? Cemeteries. Cemeteries. This is, this is historical fact. They go after the cemeteries. Even today in Europe, and other parts of the world, when, when folks want to you know, do something anti-Semitic, they'll go to the cemetery and they'll knock over the gravestones, right? Right? Go to Europe. They knock over the gravestones. They were swastikas, God for Defacing cemeteries. So the question is why? The question is why? And one answer is, well, <laughs> it's a defenseless, uh, right? Def- it's easy, well, who's going to stop you? So if you want to be able to do something and get away with it, a cemetery seems like a pretty good place to go. But there's another reason. There's another reason, and this is where my comes in. For my enemies, my enemies have made me wise. Because the enemy knows what the essence of Judaism is. And what is the essence of Judaism? It's the connection that we have with the past generation. That's the essence of Judaism. God tells Abraham, why am I creating a covenant with you? Why am I choosing you? And why, what, what's our relationship about? Because I know that he, that Abraham, is going to instruct his children and his household to follow his ways. Understand how many, we've been, we've been around, the Jewish people have been around for, how many years? Ever. Almost. <laughs> Almost. Now if you get into dinosaurs, if you start counting dinosaurs and dealing with that whole mess, then it's another story. But let's, huh? Jewish, yeah. Listen, it wasn't Barney, it was Baruch. <laughs> it was, I love you, you love me, ay ay ay. I love you, you love me, so how come you haven't called? <laughs> right. All right. That's the mother. That's the, that's, that's, Bubby dinosaur, or mother, mama dinosaur. Bubby dinosaur. It's a babasaur. Um, Mamasaurus. Mamasaurus. No, a ma- mama Mamasaurus. It's a, is also good. Alright, um, we have no idea where we are. Judaism has been around for how many years? It's been 3,300 years since the giving of the Torah at Sinai. 3,300 years. How many generations is that? How many generations is that? How, how do we measure generation? Was that 20 years? So, if a generation is 20 years, and you're dealing with 3,300 years, how many generations is that? I'm going to go 33, I'm going to go 3,300 times 5. Is that accurate? Or did I just make that up? That's accurate. <laughs> I might have made it up. You're dealing with 1,500 generations? Huh? 15,000 generations. No. 1,500 generations. It's a lot of generations. It's a lot of generations. It's more than one. 
I want to ask you this question. For Judaism to survive till this day, how many generations of people, of parents and of parents and educators did it take to transmit Torah to today, right now, so that we're sitting in this room studying Torah? How many generations did it take? How many generations did it take? 1,500. Huh? Whatever that number, 1,600, 1,650, whatever. Either 100 or 1,000, I don't know, whatever. We have to... It's a lot. All of those generations, every one of them, had to pass down the Torah to the next generation. For Judaism to stop, how many generations? For it to, to 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 be finished, how many generations does it take? One. If there was ever one generation which parents did not teach their children, which teachers did not teach their students, one generation, it ends. Judaism is built, is founded, is predicated on one simple idea. And that is one generation Teaching, teaching the next generation. And not just teaching the next generation that this is something that, we, that we're doing, but teaching the next generation that this is something we've always been doing, and we've always been doing this for a reason, because we're actually getting to a destination. It's not just that Judaism has a history, has a past, which leads to the present, but the story, the narrative, see, Judaism is a narrative. It's not an isolated moment. It's a narrative. It's a story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And in every generation, when Judaism was passed down, it was always taught as a narrative. It was taught that, We were back in the day, before we became a nation, slaves to Pharaoh. And God took us out and He gave us the Torah and He gave us a destiny. And we've been doing all of these things over all the generations. To lead up to this point, so that you should take this tradition, carry it forward, and continue the task of making the world a better place, bringing the world to its completion of a perfect world of a messianic world. That's the story of Judaism. And by the way, when the Pew studies come out and, and they say American Jewry is in danger because people are not affiliated and they don't identify themselves as Jews, in my opinion, the central challenge is that today, perhaps, and I don't think it's a challenge today, I, in, in my opinion, this is something, this is a challenge that's been going on for generations. But the challenge is giving over that narrative to the next generation in an effective way that inspires them to want to continue the story. Because if it's just, you know, Judaism is quaint rituals and something nice and, you know, latkes and, and matzah, it's not compelling enough to want to take it into the future. Judaism has a much more compelling story. Tradition. And it's not just tradition, because it's, okay, fine, so that's, that's, the, uh, that's the outer tradition. It's the old tradition. That's the antiquated tradition. Let's create a new tradition. It's more, Judaism is more than just tradition. It's tradition. It is also the history tradition, but it's also the tradition with a future, with a destiny as well. It's said that Napoleon, as he was uh, wandering the streets of Paris, one year it was on the, the day of Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, and he heard the, the crying, Napoleon, right? He heard the crying and the weeping from the Jewish quarter. And he asked one of his 
one of his guards, whatever, what's, what's this crying about? And they told him, somebody knew about Judaism a little bit, and they said it's the ninth of Av, so they have national Jewish mourning, and they, they're mourning their destruction of the temples a few thousand years ago, or seven, at that point it was what? 1700 years ago. And Napoleon is said to have remarked that a people that forever remember their past are destined to have a future. And this is, the reality is that this is what we learn from the enemy. Because the enemy said that if we want to destroy Judaism, all we need to do is a very simple thing. Just destroy the connection with the past. Symbolically destroy the graveyard, which means, or destroy the graveyard, destroy, uh, desecrate the cemetery. And what that means is symbolically, you're destroying the connection that this generation has, that a child may have with the past. And once you isolate the child or the current generation in the present, and you say, well, there's no connection, you don't have a connection, just, just live in the moment. You're okay. <coughs> once you isolate it, then you destroy the Jewish narrative. So it's a very important thing. It's a very important thing. And, it's, and there's fierce opposition to try to block that. And, and again, the reason is to, deal it, to, to basically say, the, 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 the subtext is, there is no story, there was never a story, and you don't need to continue a story. There's no story. What story? I don't know what you're talking about. We know there's a story. There's a story, because we were told the story. And we were told the story by our parents, who were told by their parents. And the story has been taught since Abraham taught Isaac, since Moses taught the Jewish people. It's been taught ever since. Joseph in Egypt taught Ephraim and Manasseh, his two kids. It's been taught throughout the generations. No matter what nation, no matter what country, no matter what era, no matter what language they were speaking, no matter what food they were eating, this, the same story was told. And, and again, I think just to remember and just to kind of think about one, one point that it takes literally thousands of generations of telling the story and retelling the story to get us where we are today. And it takes one generation to end everything. Potentially. Not, not like it's going to happen, but, but theoretically it takes one generation to just not tell the story. It's not like you have to do anything. It's just you don't tell the story. And you don't impress upon the child why it's important to, to continue the story. What's the meaning behind the story? What's the destiny of the story? Where's the end? How does the, how, how does the story end? And how you can be a part of that ending. All it takes is not telling that story. It's really an act of... It really doesn't take anything to not tell the story. And that, and that, and that has the, the greatest challenge. But the point is not... The, the, the real point I want to get to is the fact that, in general, a person... When a person sees, th- sees things through the eyes of their enemy, a person can gain a lot of clarity. Not only about the vulnerable spots, which is true. I mean, 9-11 taught us about a lot of uh, vulnerabilities that we have. But it's also about the things that are important, the things that are sacred. Because a true enemy is going to go after the things that are very important. And sometimes you might not, not even realize for yourself what's really important. There's a lot of things that are of importance but what are the things that are truly of, of essential importance that might, we might sometimes get lost um, and, and not notice? So it's, it's helpful to have, I'm not going to say it's helpful to have an enemy, because it's not like, not like Craigslist, okay, I need an enemy. You're welcome, then. 
Huh? You're welcome. So, but the point is that, you know, everything in life is a Bashem Tavtat. Everything in life is a lesson. Even our enemies are lessons about what, what's really important. And by the way, the mystics say that in general, the areas in life, the, in, in our personal, forget about the enemy, the external enemy. Let's talk about the internal enemy. I.e. the Yetzirah, the evil inclination. Or the Nefesh Abahamit, the animal soul. These are enemies, if you will, to our spiritual character, to our spiritual nature. And so you can gain a lot, you can learn a lot from where that enemy attacks. So when the enemy says, oh, let's not go to Shul, let's go to the beach, or let's go, not that there's anything wrong with the beach, but the Shul is also important, but let's, uh, let's not do this mitzvah, let's rather do that, and let's go to Vegas, whatever it is. So when, when I'm not sure why I mentioned Vegas today, but it's twice. twice now, <laughs> chef is on to me. <laughs> I, I have a 5 p.m. flight out. That's the, no. So, uh, a junket. Sitting here? A junket. How's that? Flight. It's a, oh, is it? It's a, it's a charter. Oh, uh, okay. Maybe that's a New Jersey term. Oh, no, it could be. Yeah, it's a New York term. New York, okay. You have a lot of backups, so you're not, you're not alone in this. So, the point is that our inner enemy can also teach us about what's important. The areas in which we find challenging, right? The areas where, that we find particularly challenging, whether it's regarding a certain mitzvah, whether it's regarding a certain character trait, right? Maybe it's a character trait. Maybe it's the idea of anger or jealousy or, or whatever it is. Whatever, if, if we find this to be a particular area of challenge, there's one thing that we know, and that is that that is a critical part that is a critical element that we need to work on. My enemies, that which keeps on attacking me, can make me wise and clue me into what I need to be focusing on and really um, uh, ramping up my energy and attention, etc., to make sure that I am putting in the, the requisite energy to, to fight the good battle. So now you're speaking practical. So I don't, I don't know that we can do that. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> this is all the theory of the... This is all the concept of it. No, but practically... Practically the message is a very simple one. God created the world and He didn't finish the job. Because He chose to, not because He couldn't. But He chose to. And the world is an imperfect place. And God gave us the charge... The mission and the mandate. To fix the world, not only tikkun olam, but in the kingdom of God. I know that sounds very, you know, it sounds so Jewish maybe, but it means that you're spiritually, not only a physical healing of the world, i.e., save the environment, but a spiritual healing of the world. To bring light, to bring meaning, to bring, etc., into the world. And that's the mission that we've been entrusted and we've been given the tools the tools of the Torah every mitzvah everything that we study everything that we do every mitzvah observance brings a little bit more light into the world until the world is a better place and that's, that's, that's the general and then the specific message is that each person each child each human being has their own way in perfecting the world and making the world that much better a way that no one else that has ever lived in other words, they could, their, their task is unique to them and is like a, like a 
a snowflake, a fingerprint that's never been, been duplicated or replicated before. Nor will be duplicated since or after. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's again, that's still general stuff. But we can, we can speak a little bit more, more specific. Unfinished. Yeah. No, so we should fix it. We should we should fix it up. By the way, God created us unfinished. God created us like three quarters of a mensch or a manchette, depending on your gender, right? God created us like almost a mensch. Like, I'm a mensch until someone pe- presses my buttons and then, <laughs> ice mensch, no more mensch. <laughs> ice, you know, ice means, ice means no more. Yiddish, non-mensch. <laughs> I was a mensch until you said that. Now, pff, that goes out the window. <laughs> you know, I was... Menschless. <laughs> in Minnesota. So, starring Tom Hanks. Where, where do we go from here? Vegas. <laughs> Third time's a charm, baby. <laughs> Big money. Whammy. Huh? Uh, when you were talking about planning. finding out history, you know yes. the forbidden zone and planning of the age I never saw it. Oh, man. I know, right? Moses, you mean. He thinks he's on another planet. Moses, yeah. Moses. He thinks he's on another planet. <laughs> and he's on... And he's on Earth. He discovers he's on Earth. He sees the Statue of Liberty. He oh, my. Wait. He didn't set this up at all. Well, it's okay. No, if I would have known it, I would have... Yeah. I'm assuming they're, anim- they're monkeys. Like, like they, they took over. The uh, took over. I'm not on another planet. Right, it's just they a different... This is... That's it. That's it. What are you going to do now? Just break out the bananas and call it a day. So, <laughs> bananas was for everybody. Here's the deal. It's very simple. Our enemy... Huh? Our, our enemies... Our enemies... It's the gift that keeps on giving. Our enemies teach us... What's important? Because they see things more clearly sometimes than we ourselves. The enemy knows that what is the secret to Judaism and Jewish continuity? It's the connection to the past and the belief that there's a future. So what they do is, they attack the cemeteries. So the point is, again, when you look at what the enemy attacks, and you say, oh, that's important. Let me work on that. Let me work on that connection. Judaism always tells children to listen to their parents. Not just because they're living under the same roof. But because their parents have something wise to say. Hopefully. <laughs> hopefully, on a good day. And their parents, well, what's the wisdom? The wisdom is the story, the narrative. It's not their own wisdom. I happen to read in a book, a great parenting book, Baba Mises. You have a story. It's called the Torah. It's, you have a narrative already. You don't need to come up with a new story. Harry Potter is wonderful. But it can't touch the Torah. We've got. I'm just saying, J.K. Rowling's. Look, Rowling, you have wonderful authors. Wonderful authors. But the bottom line is, you know, the one book that's the absolute bestseller that will never make the New York Times bestseller list is the Bible. Now, I, a cynic would say, because they don't know whether to put it in the fiction or the nonfiction. That's what the cynic would say. But, but, but in reality, but our story. Our story is the Torah story. We were slaves. God took us out. And He charged us with a mission. 
And he charges not only with a personal mission, but to be a light unto the nations. And to tell everybody that they're part of the mission. We've got to fix the world. We've got to make the world a better place. So God created the world incomplete, a little bit imperfect. Not because He is imperfect, God forbid. But because He chose to give us a partnership. And God created us imperfect. And God creates us, so this is what I was saying before, God creates us like three quarters of a mensch. Maybe even seven eighths or fifteen sixteenths. Thirty-five, thirty-six. Seventy-one, seventy-twos. Seventy-twos. Ish. We're now getting to the imaginary numbers that my kids talk about. But we're like at that precipice. So, our job is to finish the rest, is to do the rest, is to, is to improve on ourselves. So how do we do that? We do that through Kabbalah and coffee, primarily. <laughs> Sunday mornings, but also through continued study and doing a mitzvah and, and helping somebody. So, you know, all, all of the Torah mitzvahs that we study. Now, how does this all relate to Hanukkah? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> because Hanukkah, we also had an enemy. And also from the enemy, from the Syrian Greek enemy, we can learn a lot. If you haven't noticed, it's the theme. From my enemies, I can learn a lot. My enemies have made me wise. Wisdom. You know what wisdom is? We talk about Chachma all the time. Chachma is, not only I understand something deeper, that's something else. Wisdom is I see something that I see now for the first time that I didn't know before. My enemies can open my eyes to see something that I've never actually seen before. So let's look at what the Greeks did. What did the Greeks do? They came in to the Beis HaMikdash, to the temple. And they ransacked the place. But what did they specifically go after? What did they go after? The The oil. They went after the oil. How do we know this? Because that's our story. Because they wrote it down. Because Judaism has always told a story. If you ever, if somebody ever asks you, how do you know that that story is true? That that story happened? That the Torah story? That... You know what the answer is? How do you know that your Bubby lived? How do you know that your Zaidi lived? Because this, these are the stories. Well, that's also, right, that's also, wait, but that was a little bit later. Those were the Romans. Those were the Romans. This is before, this is a few hundred years before. Still the same, still the same the Second Temple era, a few hundred years before. But what happens? What happens? The Syrian Greeks go in. They go into the temple. They ransack the place. They put a pig on the altar. They're like totally non-kosherizing the temple, which is not a word. The temple is better than on Coach Reisenberg. And what do they do? They go after the oil. So, so the first thing we know is, wait a second. The oil then is something special. The oil is very significant. If they went out of their way to not only do the general destruction, but specifically target the oil, what that means is the oil is significant. Another clue that it's significant. Because the, and all of this is Talmudic. The Talmud says, anybody have that copy? I keep on not having that copy. I don't know why I can't just save one for myself. Um, the Talmud, no, the text. You got it right there. Thank you.
Tractate Shabbos, 21b. What is the re- my Chanukah? The Talmud asks, what's Chanukah about? For our rabbis taught on the 25th of Kislev, which was last Thursday, begin the days of Chanukah, which are eight. For when the Greeks entered the temple, they defiled all of the oils in it. They went into the temple. What did they go after? The oil. That's the story. That's our story. And when the Hasmonean dynasty prevailed against and defeated them, they, the Hasmoneans, searched and found only one cruise of oil which possessed the seal of the high priest, but which contained sufficient oil for only one day's lighting. Yet a miracle occurred there, and they lit the lamp for eight days. The following year, these days were appointed a festival with the recitation of Hallel and Thanksgiving. This is our story. This is the Hanukkah story. This is the story as preserved in the Talmud that we've been studying for generations. Unbroken. From 1700 years ago, when the Talmud was, was first penned, and from 2200 years ago, from when the story of Hanukkah actually happened. This is the story. The Hasmoneans were not, sorry, the, the Greeks, the Syrian Greeks were not satisfied with just general havoc and destruction. They went specifically after the oil. And when the Hashmonaim, when the Hasmoneans, when the Maccabees came in and reclaimed the temple, they weren't, they weren't satisfied with a general restoring of the temple. They searched to find the pure oil. And here's the big idea. And I may have mentioned this in a previous class, but maybe I didn't. And if I didn't, it's going to be that much more dramatic. So I'm hoping that I didn't. Jewish law says that when there's no oil available, you can use impure oil. If you're lighting the temple menorah, and there's no oil, there's no pure oil with the, high, with the seal of the high priest, seal light whatever oil you have. Why were they looking so hard for the oil? Why were they looking so hard? You know the story, right? They were looking high and low. They finally found what? Why were they looking? If they saw the oil collection was contaminated, so that's it. Pull out, pull out, your, uh, pull out the contaminated oil and light the menorah. Get on with it. Why did they look so hard for the oil? Why did they say, we're going to light it and hope in a miracle and not use other oil? We're going to hope that this oil will last, etc. And the miracle happened. And why did God cause the miracle to happen with this pure oil? Why wasn't it okay to use a contaminated oil? You know what the answer is? What's the answer? You know the answer already. Because then the Greeks would have won. Because what did they want to do? What did they do? What did they want to do? What did they go after? What's our story? What did they go after? Help me out here. What did they go after? What, spe- what specific thing? did they-, they went after the oil. They went to defile the oil. They went after the oil. See, even though Jewish law says that if you don't have pure oil, fine, so use other oil. But when your enemy has targeted the oil, for you to use that defiled oil means one thing. That your enemy has won. They've defiled the oil and you're using the defiled oil. To really understand this, you have to know what oil means. You have to know what defiled means. Because so far we're just saying terms. But if you know what oil means, 
And you know what defiled means? You'll know why when the Hasmoneans and the Jews reclaimed the temple, there was no way that they could use that defiled oil. Because oil was the critical piece here. The enemies taught them how important the oil was. For my enemies I become wise. The enemy went after the oil. What clues us into the importance of oil is the fact that the Hasmoneans were not satisfied with using whatever oil they could find. But they searched and searched and searched until they found one cruise. And they would only light with that one cruise. They wouldn't light with any other oil. And God, and the third piece of the puzzle is that God caused a miracle that that oil should burn for eight days. And didn't allow them to use the defiled oil. Because using the defiled oil in this context, in the context of the story of Hanukkah, would have been akin to the ending of the story being that the Greeks won. Not akin. That would have been the ending. And I want to ask you one more question. Remember I asked you how many generations it takes to perpetuate Judaism, how many generations it take to, in a sense, end it? Many versus one? How much defiling does a Greek need to do to defile the pure oil? One what? Now you know there wasn't, there wasn't there's no context of now, now you're right, one. Here's the I want to ask you a quote one of that, whatever we're talking about. Let me ask you this. Well hold on, hold on one second. On some level, you're right, but let's talk about before we you're way too deep. Let's let's go more superficial for a second. I want to ask you a question. The oil that sealed with the seal of the high priest. Pure oil? Yeah. What's the defiled oil? How, how much, what, percent pure, what, what percentage defilement is that pure oil? So what is defilement? Uh, oh. We're going to get there in a second. Let me, let me phrase it differently. Let me just make it very simple. 98% pure oil. 98% pure. It's pure oil? It's pure oil? No. 99% pure oil. 99%! If you're selling orange juice and it's 99% pure, I'm assuming you can go all the way. Not from concentrate. It's good to go. You're, you're, you're cool. We don't have to mention it. Do you know this? Do you know that in food manufacturing, you guys probably know this, in food manufacturing, there are, if you have a minute amount of a certain ingredient below a certain threshold, you don't even have to list it on the ingredients. But do you know this? So when you buy something, there may be an ingredient in there that's not even listed. Do you guys know this? Yeah. Huh? Well, they even say that the serving size, they make it smaller because if you had three ounces of it rather than two Oh, that would push it over the edge. I love that. It's so devious. So, what was it? I said that, yeah. Yeah. I don't agree with it. Oh, so one second. So here's the deal. When it comes to kosher, when it comes to kosher, this is a big problem. Why? Because you're sitting there and you're thinking, oh, I know kosher. Look, I'm reading the ingredients. Kosher, kosher, kosher. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Right? Who the fuck? I'm a walking paradox. Listen, God is not the only one with mysterious ways. But here's the, here's, here's the point. Here's the point. 
you read the ingredients, and they all look kosher. Oh, oh. Bubby's, uh, um, no, 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 wait, I'm going with something better. Schmaltz, I'm reading it, it's like schmaltz, it's got all the good stuff, it's like, it's all super kosher. But it doesn't have, doesn't have one of those, that's my sound for a seal, somehow. doesn't have that seal, doesn't have the hexer on it, the uh, certification. But you're thinking, yeah, it looks, looks kosher, looks, looks good, the ingredients are looking fine, it's not, not, not nothing looking, you know, too out of the air, I don't see any pork or products, yeah, I don't see anything. Like, obviously, you know, no, not good. The problem is there could be other stuff mixed in that, you know, unkosherize, which is, again, not necessarily or that make it non-kosher, but it's not listed because the FDA doesn't require it to be listed, but in Jewish law, that, that would be enough to, to make it not kosher. Now, wh- wh- where am I going with this? Go. Yeah. Is oil purified just by a ritual of the high priest? Oh, that's another question. What makes what did the high priest do to that oil? It's like what what the, what, what does he know that we don't know? It's like what was that oil all about? On a practical level, it just means that it was it was observed, it was what it was noted that this wasn't from anything other than an olive and this was from the first pressing. And it wasn't from, again, there were different, in the temple, there were different oils that were used for different things. Oil was used to light the menorah. Oil was used for various offerings. There were meal offerings called the mincha that were flour and oil mixed together and baked and fried or whatever it was. There was oil used on very, in ver- for various reasons throughout the temple service. Throughout the day, there were various uses for oil. And oil came from olives. But there were different pressings. You can have... You know, the first olives, pressing one, pressing two, pressing three. The second batch of olives for the season, pressing one, pressing two, pressing three. You have different, many different grades of oil. So this was, the high priest oil was the highest grade oil. It was very, oh, that was impressive. So, how did you know that this was the best oil? Because it had a seal. It said, this is the highest oil. This is, this is the best oil. It's not like if the seal was broken, oh, the menorah's not going to light or it's going to explode. We don't know what the Greeks put in there. It's going to be a. It's going to turn this into an exploding Hanukkah menorah. It's not, that wasn't the concern. The issue was it wasn't the highest, the, the purest oil. And by the way, can I blow your mind again for something else? They didn't have to use the highest grade of oil. Because I'll tell you something. I'll tell you. I'll let you in on a secret. Guess who didn't light the menorah every day? Who didn't light the menorah? Who didn't light the menorah? The high priest didn't light the menorah. Guess which oil you didn't have to use. I know I'm speaking in negatives. It's just cooler this way. Guess who's not speaking in the positives? (laughs) That was it. I followed you up until then. The, the high priest didn't light the menorah. The menorah wasn't typically lit with his oil. But when the Greek defiles your oil, you don't light your menorah with anything less than the holiest oil. Why? We're going to get to that. Now, why is the first press the best? Better than the I wish I knew more about olives, actually. <laughs> For example, when I make potato latkes, yes. my first batch is yes. not the best. I throw that out. Okay, but the, really? You throw them out? Yeah. Bring them here. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll tell you this. 
By the way, I, just speaking about latkes, I made a potato zucchini latke to live for. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I can you know why? I'll tell you why. Friday, where? This is a true story. I'm, I'm making this up. This is the narrative. I'm making latkes Friday afternoon. I'm sitting there frying. Now, the hardest thing about the latkes is the frying. I was wondering, can you deep fry latkes? Or it doesn't no, come out? No, I don't no what, it would get too hard, right? Yeah. I'm frying, I'm frying latkes. And it takes, it's hours. It's like hours. Hours. It's like, I'm, I'm, like invest, I'm doing other stuff. I'm multitasking, but it's like, it's, I'm going to splash. It's crazy. Anyway, I make them. And then, thank God, we had, you know, we had some folks over. And then yesterday, some people came over. And before you knew it, I, I, I wish it would have had some of those. I mean, so we were eating out of a latkin home. So anyway, bottom line is the latkes were good. Oh, but here's the point. With latkes are different than oil. Even though latkes are made with oil, but it's different. Apparently, I'm only going on the story that's been told. And the story is that the first pressing is the best. It's the best quality. Could be. Is that what, is that what extra virgin is? Oh, so there you go. There you have it. The first press. Like, is it greener olive or more ripe? By the way, there's different ways to extract the oil. One second, there are different ways to extract the oil. You can lightly squeeze the olive. I'm serious. Or you can really press it. That's another idea. And the stuff that you have to, the oil that you extract by really pressing it is of a less quality than that initial oil that comes out through just the basic squeeze. Whatever. And these are all, I'm, again, I'm not in the oil business. Big oil or small oil. So an olive or fruit? Vegetable? Olive. Yeah, okay, so but with fruits, it's usually better when they're a little bit riper. Right. So, but it sounds like the first press are the greener. No, no, not necessarily. No, 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 you wait till it's ripe, but then the first, the first drop. But here's the deal. Again, we're looking at what the enemies went after. They went after the oil. What did the Maccabees, what did the Hasmoneans make sure to find? They went, they went after the oil also, even though they didn't have to. Even though they didn't typically use that oil to light the menorah in the first place. And they didn't have to use a pure oil in, in, anyway. They went after that oil to find the oil, and God made a miracle with that oil. To show that that oil needs to be used now, especially since that was the target of the enemy. The enemy was targeting the oil. We have to make sure to find the oil, to find the oil that was never defiled in the first place, which we'll get to, and to relight, rekindle the menorah using that oil. Now, let, let me get back to the defiling theme. And this is, this is a major point. To defile oil, you think like, what is defiling oil? Like, What does that even mean? You know, there are different ways to make this Contemporary. It was to make this to make this story with Greeks and oil and defilement, purity and impurity and Hasmoneans and miracles. All of those ideas to make it real. You know, and I, I think I'm just going to give you one way of understanding it today, even though the discourse talks about a little bit of a different way, which we're going to get to soon, one day. You know, there's a difference between Hanukkah and Purim. Purim. Purim is the holiday that we celebrate in a few months from now, in Adar, as it starts, you know, end of winter, beginning, early, early moments of spring. 
Purim, of course, is the story of Haman, who wanted to kill the Jews, and we survived. And so we turned him into a cookie. <laughs> not literally, because that, be, that would be weird. They tried to kill us. Let's eat. Let's eat. So we actually turned him into a cookie. We turned Pharaoh into a flatbread. We turned the mighty Greek empire and all of the philosophers into greasy donuts. Into greasy uh, latkes and, and, and donuts. Anyway, not that we have a thing with food, but... If, gosh, not at all. So, what's the difference? It seems like the same story. They try to kill us. We won. Let's see. Same story. There's a fundamental difference. And the difference lies in where these stories happen. Where did the story of Purim take place? Where? Persia. Where? Where, where were the Jews living? Throughout the kingdom of the king. Who was the king? Ahasuerosh. He, he was the ruler of 127 nations. Pretty much the entire region. That entire region. He was the superpower. Persian Empire. <laughs> Historically, that was the Persian Empire. They, they had, you know, things, Roman Empire, Persian Empire. They, uh, that, was their, that was their time in the sun. Okay? The Jews were living in the Persian Empire. Amongst 127 nations. <laughs> and they were in danger. They were in danger because they were living on foreign soil. What's the story of Hanukkah? Where did, where did the story take place? In Israel. And where, is the threat, where does the threat take place? Specifically, which geographical location? In the temple. It's a completely different story. When you're, in, when you're living in a different country, and you're, so you're susceptible. Right? You're living in someone else's country. And this story has replayed itself throughout history. You're living in Germany. You're living in Poland. You're living in Hungary. You're living in Russia. You're living in, 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 in France. You're living in England. You're living in Spain. You're living in Portugal. You're living in North Africa. Wonderful. It's great. Until it's not. Because you're, you're susceptible. You're living amongst other people. And maybe the local officials and the govern, uh, government and the kings and the czars and the prime ministers, maybe they're going to say, let's get rid of the Jew. Surah Hanukkah is different. Surah Hanukkah is we were on our own soil. They came into our space. They came into our land. They came into our temple and defiled our temple. There's a difference in the vulnerability that we have when we go out. Out into the world. When we go out into... Versus the defilement, the vulnerability that we have when someone comes into our space. You see, the story of Hanukkah and the defilement of the oil can be understood a situation where the enemy comes in or influences come into your sacred space, to your inner space, to your home, to your mind, and say, don't look at things the way you look at things. Look at things the way we look at things. It's the Greek mindset infiltrating, trying to infiltrate the Jew. It's saying, don't use your oil. 
Don't light your menorah, your illumination, your way of living should not be with the purity of the high priest. It should be with our values, with our oil. We're going to defile the oil. It's going to be Greek oil. But how much Greek oil? A little bit. Again, what is not considered pure high priest oil? Even if it's 1% not. Defiled oil, right? If it's 98% pure, it's 100% impure. If you tell somebody 98% of the truth, it's 100% a lie. If you're 98% on time, you're 100% late. If it's 98 or 99.9% pure oil, it's impure oil. So you're a <laughs> Has to be on time. <laughs> It's a German. That has to be everything's precise on time, etc. The point. No, I mean, listen, you're saying me. I'm not. <laughs> no, but the point is the precision. But the point. It's not in numbers again. The point is either it is or it isn't. It can't. I mean, again, we're looking at things now in very absolutist terms. But that's what we're doing. That's exactly what we're doing. Here's here's the point. The Greeks said, "Let's come in." And we have our own way of looking at things. What's important? What's important? We have our own values. You have your values. You have your story. You have the Jewish narrative. You have your Torah and your mitzvahs. Okay? Sounds cute. But we have things that we think are important. Our philosophy. Our culture. Our way of living. And we want to influence you. We want to come into your space... We're not content with you living the way you live and us living the way we live. We want to go into your... And it's not that the Jews were encroaching on their territory. We want to go into your space. Into your sacred, the most sacred space, let's call it the mind. We want to go into your psyche, into your way of thinking. And change. Or even add in a little bit. Add in a little bit. Don't only take Judaism into consideration, also take in Greek Greek values into consideration. Secular values, Hellenistic values. Let's mix in a little bit of other values into your way of thinking. This is one way of understanding what oil is, what a Greek is, what purity is and what impurity is. So the story of Hanukkah is a very contemporary story, if you understand it on this level. The story of Hanukkah is the story of somebody coming in and saying, we, we in a sense, we want... Really what it is, is it's a loss of purity and innocence. That's what it is. It's somebody trying to steal away your innocence. Somebody's saying, you have your way of thinking, oh, it's so naive, it's so idealistic, it's so, oh, it's so Jewish. You have to think like us. You really think that? You really think that you can make a difference? Whatever it is, whatever the context is, I don't want to limit it to a specific narrative, specific conversation. You want to think in your way. The Greeks came in and they went into the, the most sacred space to defile the oil. So what is Hanukkah? 
Chanukah is the reclaiming of the sacred space or the reclaiming of innocence. And the question is, in today's day and age, can we really reclaim our innocence? Maybe when we were kids, we could reclaim it. We, we, we were innocent. As I say, Amalek at Saitin, back. You hear that phrase? Amalek at Saitin. Back in the you know, old times, in the old days, maybe we were innocent. Maybe the world is more innocent, but today, how are you going to be innocent? How are you going to be pure? How is your mind not going to be affected and, 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 and skewed by the values, the secular values that are all around us? Money, fame, power, whatever, greed, all of these true American values, right? Even though the money itself says in God we trust. That's the, that's the, biggest, uh, that's the biggest paradox of all. So how, how do we, is it possible to reclaim innocence? They say, back in the day, one could be innocent. But today, technology, cell phones, internet, who's going to be innocent? What innocence? Innocence is gone. Forget about it. Hanukkah teaches us, you can go back into your temple, to your sacred space, and you can throw out the Greeks, and you can clean things up, and you can also find a pure flask of oil that was never contaminated. You can find a, a piece of innocence and purity inside you that is still there. And from there, relight your menorah to guide your life. The story a little bit more contemporary now. Make a little bit more sense? Yes, no, maybe? A little bit. This is again one way of understanding it. It's not exactly the way we're going to discuss it here. But this is one way of understanding these themes of oil, of Greeks, of purity and impurity, of what a temple is. But the key point to remember is like this. The fact that the Greeks went after the oil is not by accident. It's not by accident. It's very specific, very intentional. The fact that the Jews went to find, made sure to find and dig and keep on digging and keep on searching until they found one flask of oil is also highly significant. The fact that they found the oil, highly significant. The fact that God provided a miracle for that oil, highly significant. The fact that we celebrate Hanukkah for eight days because of the miracle of the oil, incredibly significant. An inner oil. The oil would be the oil sealed with the high priest is the symbol. Who is the high priest? Pure. No, I'm saying, but the high priest was somebody who was absolutely pure, who lived his life in purity. He didn't leave the temple. He, huh? You're saying perfect. No, okay, fine. So he's not perfect. But he lived a life, he lived a life in the temple, he lived in a pure space, he was the one, only person once a year to go into the Holy of Holies. He was, of human beings that are not perfect, he was the closest to that pure, perfect status. Again, not 100%, but he's the closest. Yeah, no, just, just what he represented and, 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 and how he carried himself and what he did was, was symbolic of that. Look at Santa. So the bottom line is, this, the oil that's sealed with the high priest, so you asked, is it the menorah? I would say it's the oil. The innocence would be the oil, finding that oil. The, the Greeks are trying to come in and saying, it's oil, pure oil. Ah, let me give you a little 
little this, a little these values, those values, a different narrative. You have your narrative. Eh, let me give you another narrative. Money. There you go. Fame, power, greed, lust. Eh, these are other narratives. These are other values. Judaism says, what are values? Taking care of those that are, that are less fortunate than ourselves. What are values? Studying Torah, doing mitzvot, tikkun olam, to fix the world. These are, these are Jewish values. Ugh, don't worry about somebody else. Don't worry about God. Think about yourself. Think about your... your... These are the, this is, and it's, it's not... The culture, even today, is not satisfied with just letting you live the way you live. Culture says, no, we're going to push ads to your phone. We're going to, right? We're going we're gonna to infiltrate your inner space to try to get you to think the way we think. If you want to understand this as a commentary on consumerism and commercialism, go ahead. But that's not, the, that's, not the only, that's not the only message that I'm trying to relate here. But, the, but that's one aspect of it. But the point is that the oil was very significant. The Greeks defining the oil is very significant, and the Jews endeavoring to find and working tirelessly to find the oil, and finding the oil is significant, and God allowing a miracle to happen or causing a miracle to happen. Uh, with that oil is also incredibly significant. So now, now that we have all of these definitions here. So, um, Rabbi, we looked at it um, this way. Yes. Uh, that if we return to purity and innocence, we're actually returning to that spark of God being our focus, or looking for the spark. Correct. We, what we're doing is returning to a pure, more soulful, more essential way. Our menorah is lit. In other words, what is our guiding light? It's the oil of the high priest. Straight up. We're living our life with that singular focus. Of what? Not... See, the, you know, to, to understand this in a very simple way, very simple way, very simple distinction between, let's say, the Jewish way of thinking versus the Greek, which is basically society, even today, secular society way of thinking. It comes down to one distinction. Judaism demands that we ask the question, what am I here for? Not what do I get out of life, but what do I give? What, am I, what do I need to give to life? Whereas the Greeks would say, and secular society today says, what, do you get, what are you getting out of life? What is life giving you? Getting back. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you a secret. I'll tell you a secret. And, and, and this is a little bit of a dark secret. And now everyone's listening. <laughs> perfect. Perfect technique right there. So I'll tell you a secret. And it's a, it's a dirty little secret. Judaism, Judaism, traditional Judaism, picked up, picked up some impurities along the way. Over thousands of years of exile and, and other influences and other religious influences picked up stuff along the way. To the point that even today some communities will teach that what is the value of doing a mitzvah? It's the reward that you're going to get. So what does, it come, what does it come back to? What do I get out of life? What's the value of a mitzvah? What do I get out of it? Who says that life is about what you're getting out of life? The Greek says that. The Greek says that, not the Jew. The Jew says, what do I need to give to life? 
Because God put me here for a reason. Not to enjoy myself. Not that enjoyment is like evil. But I'm not here to do that. What do I get out of it? Oh, you get a huge reward in the world to come. That's Judaism? That's, uh, that's not Judaism. Judaism took on, though, unfortunately, some of the influences. Which is what Jewish mysticism and Hasidic philosophy came to fix. To get Judaism back to that pristine place, to reclaim the oil of Judaism, even within Jewish circles itself. And to kind of get rid of this sense of, what do I get out of it? Oh, it's still about me. Even, but now it's not about my body, it's about my soul. Wonderful. It's still about you. No different. So Hasidic philosophy came, according to the Tzemach Tzedek, the third Chabad Rebbe, who was incarcerated and who was interrogated. All of the Chabad Rebbe's were, were pretty much, they were all thrown in jail for various reasons. And it's not that they were, God forbid, tax evaders. It was because it was uh, you know, because they were doing too much Jewishly, and you know they were either bothering the either rubbing the government the wrong way, or even other Jewish communities without getting into detail the wrong way. And so he was interrogated, and one of the questions was, "So what is uh, what is Chabad? What is the Hasidic philosophy? Why do we need it today? What is it introducing? That Judaism Judaism has been around for thousands of years." So he said, "What happens is you have water which is pure. You can have water that's pure." Now, water that's pure is a good thing. And it can give life. It can grow life. Water is a source of growth and life and vitality and, and, and everything. Water is, water is life itself. Then you can have impurities that fall into the water. And now the water might not be life-giving anymore. How do you get rid of the impurities? One way is to burn out the impurities. You burn out the impurities and what remains is the pure water. So he said that Semach Tzedek, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Lubavitch, who lived a few hundred years ago, the third Chabad Rebbe, said... That what is Hasidic philosophy? What we study, Jewish mysticism, but specifically the teachings of Hasidus. What is Hasidic philosophy? It's the fire that burns out the impurities. To get So it's not a new Judaism. Nothing new. It's just taking things back to the original source. Bringing things back to the original purity. And what is the purity? The purity means that it's free from Greek influence. That our oil is not in any way tainted, is not in any way impure. It's not blemished. It's, there's no admixture of, it's 99% oil, but a little bit of ego. That's not oil. That's not oil. Oil is pure. If you wanted to light your menorah, if you wanted to light, what should be our guiding light? you got to look for pure oil. Can't have it any other way. That one flask of innocence that may remain somewhere deep inside. What is the, why do you need to announce it to the world? Put it in your window. I just want you to finish. Oh, so the mitzvah of Hanukkah is not only living your life, reclaiming your innocence and living your life in that way, but it's also being a guiding light to others that they don't have to be in a sense, understand the way that Kabbalah looks at Hanukkah. 
It's somebody coming in and violating your inner space. You were innocent and pure. We were all, maybe we all, maybe we still are, but some of us, we were once innocent and pure. So what happened? That was stolen from us. Something came in and stole it away from us. Or someone came in and stole it from us. Hanukkah is about reclaiming the innocence. And under, first of all, knowing one thing. That it's never too late to reclaim your innocence. I'm, I can't. No more. Rabbi, trust me. That ain't coming back. That ship ain't, that ain't, ain't sailing. Hanukkah says there's that cruise of oil that burns. That cruise of oil that's, that's waiting. That's waiting. Have to, to tap into it. We have to find out. But the cruise of oil is there. We're going to talk about what that means. But the, 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 the extension of that is to not only be satisfied with reclaiming your own innocence, but being a beacon of light. I spoke about this Wednesday night in the Torah class a little bit. But being a beacon of light to others to say that you too can reclaim your innocence. You don't have to be a victim of someone else's violation. You have to be a victim? You have to let someone violate you? Since when? But how do I stop it? I can't. That's the way the world works. Not according to Judaism. Not according to Hanukkah. It's a different story. So that's what Hanukkah is about. On one level. Does it make sense? And what complicates, of course, is that as you're being a beacon for others, there are others who have different belief systems. A hundred percent. Oh, good, great question. So I, we, I actually went through, we, we addressed this Wednesday night. The idea of lighting, you know, today we're going to light the menorah on Virginia and Highland, right at the corner. Everyone's invited, 4.30. The idea of lighting the menorah is not that everyone should adopt Jewish values, but that everyone should adopt their values. It doesn't have to be Jewish values, 600, it's not like everyone should start putting on tefillin, everyone in the world. Everyone should be a decent human being. And the seven Noahide laws, the seven basic laws for all humanity, which we've spoken about before, right? Seven... Yes, I can. Yes, I can. In fact, I can say them even better. Standing up. And dominating. With a little assistance. (laughs) Hold on. No, no, no. No song and dance. Hold on. Coming back. So this is what you guys are missing Wednesday night. I'm just saying. All right, I'm going to read to you a beautiful rendition of the seven of the seven Noahide, Noahide laws. And by the way, why are they called Noahide laws? It's like such a weird name. There are seven laws, seven mitzvot that were given to Noah, Noah of Ark of Ark fame, um, as basic laws for all humanity. You know the gene company Seven for All Humanity. Anybody know the company Seven for All Humanity? Are they called Seven for All Humanity? Seven, yeah. That company. That company. Seven for All Humanity. 
Number one, acknowledge that there is only one God who is infinite and supreme above all things. Do not replace that supreme being with finite idols, be it yourself or other beings. This command includes such acts as prayer, study, and meditation, and that is number one. By the way, this is not like the original English doctrine given to Noah, but this is a modern, not adaptation, but a modern portrayal. I don't know if that's the right word either. Number two, Respect the Creator. As frustrated and angry as you may be, do not vent it by cursing your Maker. Number three, respect human life. Every human being is an entire world. To save a life is to save that entire world. To destroy a life is to destroy an entire world. To help others live is a corollary to, of this principle. Number four, respect the institution of marriage. Marriage is a most divine act and reflects the oneness of God in His creation. Disloyalty in marriage is an assault on that oneness. Number five, respect the rights and property of others. Be honest in all your business dealings. By relying on God rather than on our own conniving, we express our trust in Him as the provider of life. Number six, respect God's creatures. At first, man was forbidden to consume meat. After the great flood, he was permitted, but with a warning. Do not cause unnecessary suffering to any creature. Number seven, maintain justice. Justice is God's business, but we are given the charge to lay down necessary laws and enforce them whenever we can. When we right the wrongs of society, we are acting as partners in the act of sustaining the creation. These are the seven laws. Seven basic laws for all humanity. And when we light the menorah in a public place, what we're saying is, not that everyone should adopt the 613 mitzvot that were given to the Jewish people. What we're saying is that everyone should reclaim their own innocence and be a mensch in their own way and make the world a better place by at least following these basic laws. And these are not... I mean, there is talk in the first two about the Creator, but these are not like mystical or any... any these are basic, fundamental laws of, of maintaining uh, a, a, a healthy place. Any correlation with the seven... Um, the sphero, the energy... Oh, seven... Well, the sphero or the temple... Um, the menorah in the temple... It says in Kabbalah that the temple menorah, the seven branches of the temple menorah, are symbolic of the seven spheres, the seven emotional energies. And one message of that is that you know two people can be opposite emotionally, um, emotional temperaments. You know, one person could be a loving person, and one per- of a loving nature, chesed, and another person can be more of a disciplinarian type, you know, by nature. And yet, the Torah teaches us, the menorah teaches us that both can give light in their own way. Both have their branches on the candelabra. And the candelabra, the menorah of the temple, at least, was hammered out of one piece of solid gold. Which means that ultimately, even if people have different emotional temperaments, they all come from the same source, and they all have the same purpose. So the source is the same, the beginning is the same, the destination is the same, but how we get there may be a little bit different. That's why it branches out, but it's ultimately serving the same function. So, do these seven Noahide laws correspond to that? They might. I haven't seen the write-up. But here's the point I want to get back to. Hanukkah is about reclaiming that pure flask of oil, however small it may be, however minute it may be. And you might say, yeah, but how's that going to sustain me? That's, it's, not even enough, it's barely enough to last for one day. Have faith. Have faith in the pure flask. Have faith in that pure oil. It'll last not only one day, but two days, eight days, taking in the whole week, and then one for the future, etc., Okay, with all of this introduction in mind, we can now read a few lines inside. <laughs> all right.
Let's let's read some uh, let's read some Kabbalah. Oh, in English? So I would just spell it N O A H I D yeah, Noah. Noah. Noah, yeah, Noah, yeah. In Hebrew they're called the Sheva Mitzvot Bene Noah. The seven mitzvot, commandments, that were given to Noah and his children, i.e. all of humanity. Love, giving, that's one. Chesed, Loving kindness, i got to remember. Loving kindness, which is chesed. Gvura, which is withholding discipline. You know what? Let's 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 go let's go through that right after the class because I want to read. Let's read a few lines and then we're gonna we're gonna close out. All right. Does anybody remember where we got up to a few weeks ago? Thirty-two. Thirty-two. That's what I have also. Where it says this is evidenced. But here's the problem: we can't just jump in the middle of a paragraph or at the beginning of a paragraph. So turn back, please. But we're not. I'm, we're gonna let you read it with very minimal commentary. Holy oil again. Holy oil, Batman. So let. <laughs> oil corresponds to the letter of code of code as it says it's not how much cups of tea it's how much sugar no I'm kidding go, go take it away as it says oil of holy anointment holy kodesh is a word unto itself similar to oil which floats on top of all liquids and does not mix with them what he's doing in that paragraph is he's, is he's identifying what oil means the Greeks blemished the oil, they defiled the oil, we reclaimed the oil, we lit the oil, one cruise of oil, pure oil, blah, 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 oil. Oil, oil, oil. What's oil? <laughs> I know what you're thinking. What's the oil? What is the oil about? Oil is Kodesh. Oil is holy. Why is it holy? It's essential. It's the deepest part of something. At the essence of something lies the oil. It also floats above everything else. Oil is that which is not integrated. Oil is what floats. Oil is the highest. It's Kodesh. It's holy. It's distinct. It's separate. Continue. It follows that the defilement of the sanctuary's oils by the Greeks is, in this aspect, more grievous than their defilement of the sanctuary, even though the holiness of the sanctuary ranks highly in the ten levels of holiness. The sanctuary, the Heichel, right? We did this a few weeks ago. The Heichel, where the menorah sits. It's also known as the Kodesh, the holy. Not the holy of holies. That only has the ark, right? The holy ark is in the holy of holies. But right outside of the holy of holies is something called the holies, or the Heichel. What's the Heichel? The sanctuary. What's in the sanctuary? The menorah, the inner altar, the table with the showbread. Three things, three items, but the menorah is there. They defiled the menorah. They defiled the whole area. But then they went after the oil. And in this context, in this aspect, he says in parentheses, in this aspect, the Pratzen, in this detail, in the story of Hanukkah, what the Greeks were trying to achieve, the oil is the most significant detail. Yes, they defiled the temple as a whole, but they went after the oil. And in our context, that's highly significant. And his further proof that oil is significant is evidenced in the next paragraph by another point. This is evidenced also by the fact that even after your children came and purified the temple, they needed a miracle in order to light the menorah. Beginning with the miracle of they found one pure jug sealed with the seal of the high priest. 
This miracle is an expression of the infinite life, which transcends let me, let me So let's let's stop this for one second. What is the what evidence? What what are we? What evidence are we bringing? I, so I mentioned this before. We want to recognize, we want to understand, or we're trying to establish that the oil is the most significant element here of the story. They went after the oil, and we went after the oil. How do we go after the oil? To find the oil. So, but we needed a miracle to light the menorah. It wasn't so easy. It was miraculous that we found the oil and that we were able to light it. So that's what was the miracle? He says there were two miracles. He, he only says the first one. What's the first miracle of the oil? The fact that they found it in the first place. After the Greeks thought that they had defiled all the oil, after the Greek says, I'm going to destroy all of the innocents, the fact that there's one jug of oil left, that's a miracle. The fact that there's even a semblance of innocence left, that's a, that's a tremendous miracle. That's miracle number one. What's miracle number two? He doesn't mention it, but we know the other miracle. The miracle, you don't need this text to tell you the miracle. The Talmud tells us what the miracle is. What's the miracle? That that one small jug flask of oil that only had enough to last for one day, last and burn for eight days. That's the second miracle. What does he say? He says, you know what a miracle is? What's a miracle? There's Teva and then there's Nes. Teva is nature and Nes is the miraculous. There are, three, there are two different realities. There's the natural reality, the way things usually roll, and then there's the miraculous reality. reality the miraculous state of, of affairs where things don't work the way they usually work. What's the difference? There's a very simple difference. The difference is, how much do you see the hand of God? See, for God, to, the sun usually rises in the east and sets in the west. How hard is it for God to switch things around? For the sun to rise in the west instead of the east. How hard is it for God? It's not hard. So what's the difference? Why do we call one nature and if the other were to happen, we would say, well, that's a miracle. Why? Because it's unusual. So what does it evoke for us? It evokes the fact that, oh, there's, there's something higher at play here. See, we say when things roll as usual, we say, oh, that's nature, that's the way things are supposed to be. We take it for granted. In other words, teva, the Hebrew word for nature, as in the Hebrew word for sandals. No. Teva. <laughs> teva is also related to the word of tubu. Tubu biyamsuf, it says. The Egyptians were drowning, they were sunk in the yam, in the, in the Sea of Reeds. Tubu. They were sunk. What does it mean that they're sunk? It means that it's there, but it's hidden. God powers nature. But nature, by virtue of the fact that it's so consistent, hides on the reality of God. You don't see God in the sunrise because you take it for granted, because it happens every day. You don't thank God for every breath you take, typically, unless there was a challenge. But typically you don't thank God. You don't say, it's a miracle I'm breathing, even though it is a miracle. <laughs> what defines a miracle? I don't see God. Why don't I see God? Because I, I take it for granted. Because I did it a moment ago. And I'll do it a moment from now, please God. So I don't, I don't see it as something unusual. So that's what Teva is. Teva is Tubu. is God's hand, but sunken, hidden. Hidden within, within the usual order of things. And what is a Ness? What is a miracle? A Ness also means a pole. Ness means something that rises above. And Ness means something that is obviously the hand of God because it's so unusual. Where else did it come from? You can't chalk it up to nature, Mother Nature, because nature doesn't roll like that. For a sea to split and stand like a wall, it does. A wall's a wall, and a sea collapses. 
for a sea to have the nature of a wall is a miracle. Straight up a miracle. I can't explain it. So that must be God. So what does he say? In Kabbalistic terminology, the, 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 the natural, natural activity is powered by a lower level of godliness. We'll have to pick this up over here next time and elaborate. But a miracle comes from an energy of God that transcends Hishtal Shalut, that transcends the order of creation, and that's why you see it as an obvious sign from God, or a sign of God. And continue, and I, we just have a few more lines, and I want to just... In the presence of such light, even the darkness does not darken. To the contrary, this light illuminates the darkness so that even the darkness shines. And Havaya would be added and will illuminate We'll have to explain that last line, and Havaya will illuminate my darkness, which is a verse. Which is a verse that comes from Samuel. We're going to explain that later, next week. But here's one point before we conclude. He says, this light... The light of the oil, with light, not a physical light, not the physical light of lighting the menorah in the temple. The spiritual light, or the concept, the energy, the light, of the miracle of the oil, of lighting the oil, of lasting for eight days, etc. This light was enough to illuminate the darkness of the Greeks' defilement. What does that mean? That this purity, this innocence, this light, was enough to counteract even the darkness that the Greeks tried and in a sense succeeded to infiltrate within your psyche. Even that darkness, that fierce darkness, is pushed away by that light. Because in the presence of the light of this one small pure flask of oil that remains untouched by the Greek, in the presence of that light, when that oil is found and it's put into the menorah and it's kindled, that wipes away any and all darkness of the Greek. And then he says something even, even greater than that. Not only does, does no, can no darkness stand up to this light, but this light illuminates the darkness so that even the darkness shines. There's one level where the, the, the trauma of my life no longer impedes my progress forward. And my, my reclaimed innocence... Is going to is going to illuminate my way, my life, and even all of the darkness of my past. It's not going to be dark anymore because this light is so big. And then there's another, and then there's a next, and then there's another level, and that is that it's so bright now that even those moments that I defined as dark before are now redefined as bright, and that's something truly phenomenal, and that's mir- that's a miracle. That's one way. That's one way. One way is that you're able to see it in a new light and see how this trauma, this challenge, this defilement was necessary to get me where I needed to go. Not only is it not holding me back from future progress, but it's a part of my light today. And I've now redefined it. This is the true power of teshuva. Going back into the past and reclaiming it. Reclaiming those dark moments redefining them as bright moments. And that's the true miracle of Hanukkah. But it all hinges on the oil. And so we'll pick this up next week. Made sense?